Well, good morning, New Hope. So good to be with you, and welcome back to Easter Avenue as we journey with Jesus on his way this week of Holy Week to the cross and to the empty grave on Easter morning. Now, I'm a child, I'm a youth of the 80s, so I don't know if you uh, have this affliction, but when I hear Easter Avenue, this tune in my head goes, we're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. I told Bill, I think we missed it. We could have had the next Godspell, the next Jesus Christ superstar. We're going to rock down to Easter Avenue. None can take you higher. Okay, sorry, that's just, uh, that's what's going through my, through my brain. But last week, Pastor Bill did such an awesome job starting us off with the plain truth and talking about the hundreds of prophecies that, that the Old Testament prophecies that foretold where and how and when Jesus would come to save us, to, to die in our place and bring us back to God. Today we enter the story, what is known in the church as Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the beginning of Holy Week that will lay out the most significant moment in history. Here's our big idea for the day. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is both a declaration and an invitation to receive him as the king of kings. Now, now for most of us, I, I get it. We don't really get this whole king, kingdoms, monarchy things. We're a couple hundred years into our democracy. But I don't know if you know this, that I married into royalty. Yeah, my, my bride, Erin, was a Cambridge ambassador princess back in her high school days. And so when uh, we first came to New Hope and went to the Isani Rodeo Parade, uh, the parade that New Hope goes through Isani in July, we ran into her old friend, Lori Soley. And Lori's been running the Cambridge Ambassador Program for years, even when Erin was in there. And she, she has this look of excitement here because she turns to her now royalty high schoolers on that day, and she goes, girls, 1996, 1996. It was funny to us because we had just watched Sandra Bullock in um, Miss Congeniality, so we thought it was hilarious. But nevertheless, I married into, into royalty, so I, I get it somewhat, I guess. I think we all do, and we'll, we'll see that as we walk through today. But if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 21, if not, you'll just have to follow along. It's a little longer text, so we didn't put it on the screen. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Now when they neared to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him 
and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Our word for the day. So first of all, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem is a declaration of him as the king of kings. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this story and its significance. Now, a lot of the stories of Jesus may happen in one or two or three of the gospels, but the ones that happen in all four, we know this is very significant because this kicks off the main event of why he came to earth, to die on the cross, to save us and to bring us back to God. Jesus comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to claim his kingdom. And this is a significant shift because the secrecy has been lifted. You see, up until this time, Jesus is going in his three years of ministry and he heals someone, but he tries to keep it on the down low, right? He says, my time has not yet come. And so he doesn't want things going viral quite yet. So he heals someone and he moves on to another city. But this is different. The secrecy is lifted. And he intentionally is living into the prophecy of him as the king of kings. Jesus arranges the donkey, the the colt, fulfilling messianic prophecies. And much like we talked about last week, Jesus is walking in the fulfillment of all the prophecies of how the Messiah would come. He rides on a donkey, on a colt, an unridden fowl that is first ridden by the King Jesus. Donkeys were ridden by rulers in times of peace, and so he's coming in peace not to overthrow the political rulers of the day. And Matthew includes the uh, messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and sitting on a donkey, and a colt, the fowl of a donkey. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we, we hear that people put their cloaks down, spread them on the road before him, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. There's a famous story, whether it's fable or not, that Sir, Sir Raleigh, Sir Walter Raleigh, one of the great explorers and travelers during the time of Queen Elizabeth I and King James I of England, that there was a time when Queen Elizabeth was walking through London and he was with her and she came upon some ground where rainwater had made the ground muddy and he immediately threw down his cloak in front of her so that she would not get muddy. This, is, uh, this doesn't happen every day, does it? I like how N.T. Wright says, if this has happened to princes, to presidents, to prime ministers, he's just never heard of it. And so this is significant, valuing the person as highly as you can to throw down your cloak. It implies that if a need arose, you would give them anything you had they needed. For those who knew the scriptures, when one of Israel's famous kings came to claim their rightful throne over the existing ones, their followers would throw their cloaks down before them. This is a sign of worship, and palm branches are a sign of royalty. For 500 years, 
the Israelites have waited for their Messiah to come. And here comes Jesus. Riding into Jerusalem, he is declaring clearly he is the King of Kings. Secondly, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is an invitation to receive him as our King of Kings. We read that in the story, the whole city is stirred, it's shaken. And at the time of Passover, what they were celebrating there, there's about 30,000 inhabitants at that time that lived in Jerusalem. But with everyone coming to celebrate that great feast, the Passover, there were probably at least 100,000 or a couple hundred thousand in and around Jerusalem. So the crowds in and those coming with him are claiming his deity, messianic shouts, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And yet the Palm Sunday story is bittersweet, isn't it? These cheers of their kingship turn rapidly during the week to crucify him. The fickle nature of the cheering crowds can be seen as our misperception of Jesus as king. They wanted a Messiah to free them from their political impression. But this king was coming to be enthroned on a pagan cross. The story of Jesus' triumphal entry is a great object lesson, a mismatch of our expectations and God's answer. The drama that's being played out is the people want the surface stuff, a new king, political change, relief from foreign rulers. But Jesus wants to establish the kingdom of God, his upside-down kingdom. He doesn't just want to change political earthly rulers. He wants to overcome the prince of the air, the king of the world, Satan himself, and sin and death, and establish God's kingdom with us. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is both a declaration and an invitation to receive him as the king of kings. The invitation to receive him as king challenges us to get honest and ask what kind of king and Messiah we truly want. Do we want the king that maintains the status quo because it's working for us? Jesus, I I like you as my savior, but I don't know about this Lord stuff. I don't know if I want to give you every area of my life to truly reign over. It's called salad bar Christianity, right? We take the parts we like and leave out the rest. But if we truly want him to be the king of kings, to be the Messiah, then we need to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We may think we don't get the concept of kings and kingdoms and monarchies. We're the people for the people, by the people. But we get kings and kingdoms because sin is all about making us kings and queens and rulers and controllers. I love this quote by the late pastor and author A.W. Tozer. 
The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. For those in recovery, you realize that this is at the core of successful life of recovery. And church, this is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciples. We are called to come to the end of ourselves, to die to our sinful nature that seeks to put us in charge and put us in the center and make us kings and queens of our lives. Tozer was brilliant in calling sin in its essence, putting us on a stolen throne. Only God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are worthy to sit on the throne of heaven. But when we claim that we're God, we sit on a stolen throne. In speaking against the king of Babylon and also prophetically against Satan, Isaiah refers to the stolen throne in Isaiah 14, 13 to 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. It's absurd. And yet that's what we do when we put ourselves in charge. We put ourselves on the throne, on a stolen throne. Church, are you enthroning yourself in pride, in self-rule over your life? Or are you in the process of dethroning yourself. This is what Lisa Bevere in her book Without, Revi- Without Rival calls it. Pride encourages the worship of self while humility dethrones the selfishness of pride. We're either taking a stone throne or we're humbly dethroning ourselves and saying, Jesus, only you our king of kings. Only you are worthy to be worshipped and adored and to run my life. Jesus, the one who is worthy, doesn't come on a war horse this time. He comes humbly on a donkey. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he either comes through what's called the Lion's Gate, which is also called St. Stephen's Gate because that's where he was stoned to death. One of the early followers of Jesus. Or Jesus comes through the east gate. They're both right next to each other, both right by the temple. And Jesus comes through one of those gates, and immediately the first thing he does is he comes to the temple to cleanse the temple and say, my house is, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. The east gate is also called the gate of the Messiah. And Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 44 We read that because God has entered through this gate, it must remain shut until the prince comes to take his rightful place as the prince of peace on earth. I read that uh, when Muslims were in control, full control of Jerusalem hundreds of years ago, they they, uh, sealed this gate to at least six feet wide of concrete. Well, that's not going to stop my Jesus when he comes to sit at that gate and to lead us home. Gate imagery in the Old Testament is is very symbolic. 
Because Jerusalem and specifically the temple are the address of God. And so the walls and the gates protected the city and protected the presence of God, where he, by his spirit, was in the holy of holies in the temple. Bob Roby uh, recently did a prayer training for, for some of our prayer team, and he spoke about the importance of these gates in, in the Old Testament. And when Nehemiah was called to go back to Jerusalem and to, to build back the city, he built up the wall and he specifically labels who built up these gates and their importance. And just like it's important in the Old Testament of protecting the presence of God, where is the temple now, church? It's right here. And now we need to guard the gates of the temple of God. We need to guard our hearts. If Jesus is truly coming in to be the king of kings, we need to pay attention to what's coming in and out of his holy presence in our lives. Psalm 24, 7 through 10 is a scripture I've often prayed over our church, over other churches I've been in. And uh, Pastor Bill and I were praying this morning, uh, early on, just praying for today. And I, I prayed this scripture as well. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And it ends, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We're asking God to protect. Lift up your head, O you gates, the doors of our church. That, that anything not of God wouldn't come in. But it's so important if we're asking him to be the king of kings in our lives to, to speak to the gates of our heart. And say, lift up your head, O you gates, that the king of glory may come in. And he is the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. I know how precious this word is because it's the last words I prayed over my brother before he went to see Jesus. And I went in his final week. He died last February 25th. I went and was there from a Monday to he passed away on a Thursday, and he was unresponsive that whole week. And I was a little disturbed because he had, he had been away from Jesus for so long and came back to Jesus, and we're so thankful for that. But someone from his past had come the week before, and just of, of religious belief we don't stand with, and said a blessing over him. I'm like, I don't want that. And there was something just hanging on. There was something just keeping him from going to the arms of Jesus. And so I declared these words, and I said, James, you have the king of glory in you. You've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But I speak to the gates of your heart. He comes in, and he takes you home, and anything keeping you must leave now in Jesus' name. He'd been unresponsive for four days. He opened his eyes. He took his last breath, and he went home to Jesus. Is God's word powerful? 
Church, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he's the prince of peace. Jesus is inviting us to receive him for who he is. He's the king. He's inviting us to give him reign over our lives, full abandon to his rule and his peace and his goodness. What an invitation this Palm Sunday to start Holy Week, to pause and to invite him, the only one worthy of praise and worship. Do we need a king of kings now? As world rulers wage war, as, as big-time entertainers act out of hatred, we need a king of kings and a lord of lords. Jesus comes this day to declare and to invite us to receive him as our king of kings.